Okay, turn to 1 Samuel, everyone, 1 Samuel 28. I'm going to be reading um, 1 Samuel 28, three through, verse 3 through verse 25, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 31 and read the first six verses in chapter 31 as well. So try to keep up with that. We have it on the screen. If you need to just read it off of the screen, that's fine too. This is 1 Samuel chapter 28, 3 through 25, and um, let me pray one more time just that God would direct us through this passage. Lord, would you please do that? Um, I want to step out of your way. I need you, Lord. We all need you. So we come to your word humbly. Um, We take away our, we put away our pretension and our pride and our um, defense mechanisms, all of those things, and start with me to ask that you would lay ourselves bare before you and that you'd speak to us. This wouldn't just be an intellectual exercise, but that this would affect the whole person and also our community and that we would take this out with us to affect others as well through our lives and our hearts. Please bless this time. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 25. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines... They assembled and came and encamped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium and I, will be, and I will go to her and I will inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium in Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and his two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me, a spirit, and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. So the woman said to him, surely you know that's what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her. He swore to her by the Lord. And he said, as As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Or in verse 11, if you're looking for where we are. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, that's uh, the word Elohim in the Hebrew, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. 
Then Samuel said to, to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what shall I do? And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and giving it, given it to your neighbor, to David. Because you did not obey his voice, the voice of the Lord, and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, imagine this, 24 hours from now, you and your sons will be here with me. Ooh. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Well, then Saul fell at once, full length onto the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, it's an awkward moment for her, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hands, and I've listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength so you can leave, so you can go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth, he sat on the bed, and now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Now, jump over to chapter 31, if you can follow. This is just the first six verses. Now, the Philistines, this is, this is about a day later. This is Saul in that battle. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Happy times, happy scripture. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings. 
And not only does this section of scripture, uh, this section of the Bible track and tell us of the life of David, that's really what it's famous for, the, um, the up and coming young king of Israel, the anointed one, the, the, king of, uh, the king David, but it also tracks the arc of the life of Saul, the story of the life of King Saul. And this particular story that marks his end is a particularly fascinating story, is it not? It's just fascinating. It's mysterious. It's supernatural. It's a little bit creepy. Um, I mean, you know, there's a necromancer involved. That's someone who communicates with the spirits of the dead. We hear from Samuel post-mortem. I mean, this is a fascinating story for a lot of different reasons. But even more fascinating, in my opinion, is the point behind all of these stories, behind all of these things. This story summarizes the absolute tragedy of the life of Saul and is, I think, in some ways, the culmination of Saul's impaired heart. I think this has to do with an impaired heart. The life of Saul is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale to all of us of the power of an impaired heart, the power that an impaired heart has to shipwreck a life to completely run a life aground. So this passage tells us a little bit of everything. First, it shows um, the symptoms of an impaired heart and the point where it turned. Samuel's gonna tell us where where the disease entered and how it ran its way through. Um, It tells us the the consequences, the the symptoms in a person that has an impaired heart. Hopefully, maybe we can recognize it in our lives, some of the uh, manifestations of a heart that's not quite right. It also tells us the tragic outcome of an impaired heart, Um, the power that it has really to to ruin people. And it tells us how to avoid, how to change, or how to heal an impaired heart. How can we avoid this ourselves? So that's what we're going to learn today, the power of an impaired heart and how we can be healed from it. Uh, Point number one, Saul's impaired heart, where it all started. Look at verse four back in chapter 28. It says, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So here's the scene. The Philistines have decided to launch an offensive on Israel with a massive army. And if you study the geography of this, you're going to find out that this is no mere um, like border skirmish, actually. Um, Actually, the, the Philistines have penetrated deep into the heart of Israel with a far superior army. They had now conquered a huge portion of Saul's territory, and they're now threatening to do even more damage by heading further east toward the Jordan River. So this is a substantial threat that must be answered. This cannot be ignored. And Saul responds by bringing his own troops because he's got to respond. He can't just ignore this. He brings his own troops, but when he gets there to assess the situation, he's struck by the sheer size of the army, of the Philistine army, and he quickly realizes that uh, Israel is grossly outnumbered. And it evidently is such a large threat that Saul senses the loss of his kingdom. This is not, Saul is sensing that this is not just 
um, one of many battles leading to a bigger one, this could be the, the, this could be the nail in the coffin, so to speak. This is not, this is not good. This is a national uh, game changer. Strategically, this puts Saul in an impossible position. On the one hand, like I said, this is a threat that he can't ignore. He's got to respond to the Philistines' attack. But on the other hand, this is a battle that he cannot win. So he's stuck. He's forced to fight a battle that he will most certainly lose. And the text tells us that the threat of losing his kingdom causes Saul's heart to tremble causes his heart to tremble, and it's from this inner posture, a threat, um, you know, to, a threat that's reached to the core of Saul's being, that's what I really want to focus on, that sets the context of the subsequent story. From this threat, from this pain and stress on his heart, every subsequent action of Saul is now explained from this place. This is what causes him to inquire of the Lord, the stress on his heart goes to God. And when that doesn't work, this is what drives him to break his own laws and to seek out someone who can communicate with the dead, to break his own, to go against his own convictions. The word medium, by the way, or necromancer in the Hebrew has the meaning of someone who bridges between two entities. So in this sense, it is someone who is a channeler or a conduit between the physical world and the spiritual world. It's someone who stands in between the living and the dead. And in Leviticus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that mediums and spiritists and necromancers, those who really can contact these, this spiritual world and do, they have no place, Moses says, in the lives of God's people. And so Saul rightly outlawed it from the national life of Israel. This is not going to be a part of, of how this nation lives. But in this story, there's so much stress and anxiety on his heart that he's so desperate that he's willing to go against his own laws, against his own convictions. He's no longer eating. He's no longer sleeping. This is a man who's tormented. So all this enormous effort and compromise is because of the stress that's on his heart. It's trembling. Now, before we go any further... Let me get a running start at this. Let me back up a little bit and take a few minutes to define and describe what the heart is in the Bible. Let's define some terms. Because in the Bible, when the Bible uses the phrase the heart, it's not speaking about it the way us Westerners, us modern people do. Typically, when we talk about the heart in our culture, we think about the seat of our emotions. I love you with all my heart. You know, that type of a thing. It's an emotional, passionate type of a word for us. But in the Bible, the heart is not directly associated with our emotions, though the heart certainly affects them. Rather, the heart is the place that our most significant choices are made. I need you to understand that. That's the key. The heart is the place that our most significant choices are made. This is the place of the will or the volition, the place where one decides what the non-negotiables in one's life is going to be. How am I going to live? What kind of person am I going to be? What are the things that I will stand for? What are the things that I will compromise on? We're so when the Bible's talking about the heart, we're directly talking about the character of a human being. Now listen, I'm not talking about what you decide to believe cognitively or intellectually. 
That's not what I'm saying. This story shows us that it's possible to act contrary to what one believes intellectually or, or cognitively. Intellectually, Saul has outlawed mediums and spiritists and diviners, but his heart has made another decision, has prioritized something else above this that now drives him to overrun or overturn his own intellectual convictions, to override his mind. In other words, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about you. Who have you decided to be? Every one of us has a character made up of core decisions that you've decided based on how you've grown up, how your parents were, looking at mistakes, looking at successes, what you admire, what you, what you think is valuable, how you define your value, how you demand the universe to recognize your existence. All of those things goes on in your heart. What are the things that you will uphold no matter how you feel? That's what we're talking about regardless of if it makes sense or not. Um, I always think of, of um, do you guys remember Cassie Bernal in 1999? Uh, Cassie Bernal was a high school student in Columbine High School in 1999 when gunmen that, uh, that uh, attended her school um, purchased guns illegally, went into the school and started massacring students. And they came to Cassie Bernal and they pointed a gun. They knew she was a Christian, a professing believer. They pointed a gun right at her head and they said to her, if you renounce Christ, we will let you live. And she said, that I will not do. And boom, that was the last thing she said. They killed her. She didn't care if she had God completely figured out. Do you think Cassie Bernal could have won a apologetic debate? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. But she had made a decision. Whether I can figure it out or not, I'm not moving. I would be willing to bet that her emotions were saying, run, denounce Christ. Fight or flight kicks in. I bet her body was looking for the exits. And yet she, her character overrode those things and said, no, this is the kind of person I'm going to be. I don't care about anything else. No, that's the realm of the heart that the Bible's talking about, character. And from those decisions, listen carefully, it's really important. From those decisions, every other aspect of your life is affected. And in times of distress, especially in times of stress and anxiety, your true heart, regardless of what you profess, your true heart is revealed and exposed. Now, the greatest power of the heart, it's it, the greatest power of your heart, according to the Bible, is its ability to make those kinds of decisions. Let me read to you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is Moses speaking to his people. This is right before Moses died. Look what he says here. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today, how? By loving, this is heart language, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and its rules, then you will live and you will multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away 
And what does that look like? Well, you will not hear, but you're drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going, to, going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, and that you may dwell in the land that the Lord has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Notice in verse 16, Moses says that their obedience comes from, quote, loving the Lord your God. This is heart language. True obedience. That means with the affect and with the right motives and with the humility and the service, that the, the obedience, that it's not just a quantity of obedience, but a quality of action, that comes from loving the Lord your God. In other words, choosing life is a choice to love the Lord your God. And from that place, from that inner core, the gas that's in your tank, from that place, one's actions and way of life are dictated they will, quote, walk in his ways and, quote, keep his commandments. Not just the law, but the spirit behind the law. When Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? Remember what he said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you, the love of God in your heart affects every other aspect of your life, including your social life. Choose. Or you could say that one's actions are an echo of the decisions of character made in the heart. Another way of putting it is that the heart is the center of your worship. That's probably the best way of putting it. In, the heart is the center of your worship. Worship meaning what you, what you have put ultimate value on. We're not talking about songs and singing. We're talking about a way of life based on what you have put your ultimate value center. It's a, it's a centering on to Yahweh. And the, according to the Bible, the Bible does not divide mankind into a group of people that are worshiping and then a group of people who are not. The Bible would say that anthropologically, what it means to be a human is to worship. You, we're worshiping something. When Yahweh is the center of worship in our hearts, when we've chosen to center our lives on him, to that degree, our whole life will be moving into alignment and health and healing. True worship is a healing experience. It heals us. It's beautiful. But when anything else is at the center of our hearts, to that degree, our health will be distorted and warped. Mind, body, and soul will be affected by what we worship. And we're all worshiping. And what we're truly worshiping, regardless of what you proclaim with your mouth, can be discovered by how you're living and the reasons behind why you're living, what you're doing. For example, Paul the Apostle said, um, he, in Philippians, he said, I cannot think of one law of Moses that I, that I didn't keep when I was a Pharisee. He said I was flawless. But his heart was so wicked. He was doing all the right things, 
for all the wrong reasons. You know, we do that. It's our, the, the spirit, it's the heart behind it, behind the law. This is what Jesus is getting at when he said, what comes out of your mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. This is Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is Saul's problem here. This is why Proverbs tells us, guard your heart with all vigilance above all else, for from it flows the issues of life. Everything going right, everything going wrong in your life is coming from the posture of your heart, the choices that you have made along the way and that you're still making. For example, if someone has decided that the chief value in life is prosperity, success, they may believe that it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to tell a lie. They might believe that intellectually, but there will come a time when telling, a, when telling the truth will not benefit that person. You know that, right? Um, I was, like, if Nicole and I, we definitely want to teach Noble to tell the truth, not to lie. There's a couple ways we could do this. We could say, Noble, please don't lie, and if you know, if you do lie, we will find out, and if we don't, God will find out, and he'll send you to hell. We could do that. But what we're doing is, the fatal flaw with that is we're saying, tell the truth when it benefits you. Because telling the truth will always benefit you. And that's just flatly not true. It's just not true. Telling the truth did not benefit Cassie Bernal in that moment. Telling the truth can sometimes get you demoted. Telling the truth can make your worst dreams come true. Where's the character involved? And if, if our truth, if we've decided in our hearts that prosperity and success is our God, well then guess what? We're gonna lie. We're gonna embezzle. We're gonna minimize. We'll exaggerate. Even though we profess, oh, it's wrong. Yeah, we shouldn't lie. Our hearts will override that in that moment based on what we're worshiping. However, if someone decides to believe that their value is fixed by God no matter what others declare about them, then they can tell the truth even when it will not advance them or worse, when it might demote them or get them killed. Because my identity is fixed with God. It's fixed with Jesus, see. It's a, otherwise, it's what psychiatrists call a, an untethered identity. It goes up and down based on your successes or failures. Some of our relationships with God are like that. It's up and down, up and down. It's an untethered identity rather than something that's firm on something that never, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases can hold us through anything. So to apply this to our story, I submit to you that Saul's heart is trembling because that which he has decided to live for, to worship, if you would, is being threatened. That's how we can tell. How do you react? It really comes out. You know what you're worshiping with how you react when, when it's threatened to be taken away. This is what explains the incredible energy and effort to manipulate and control um, even God in the, in the story by hacking the spirit world. That's what Saul is doing by sinfully calling for Samuel even when it violates his own convictions and laws. I mean, Saul is saying he reaches out to the Lord, the Lord does not inquire, that won't even stop Saul. Uh-uh, I won't take no for an answer. And he figures out a way to hack it. When did Saul make this heart decision? 
When did it happen? Well, Samuel, post-mortem Samuel, is gracious enough to tell Saul. <laughs> he says in verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. Do you remember this? I haven't forgotten, Saul. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David, because you did not obey Obedience comes from the heart, right? You did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you to this day. Samuel's referring to that fateful battle against Amalek recorded in chapter 15. Um, God gave Saul a um, directive. I want you to go into battle against the Amalekites and I want you to utterly destroy them. I want you to wipe them out completely. I don't, want, I don't want the cattle. I don't want anything to be left of the Amalekites. This is your job. And Saul said, okay. And he amassed this battle or this, his army. And he went to war with them. And he defeated them and, and led a, a huge slaughter against them. And yet, he decided that he would keep some things alive, including their king. Um, by the way, if you noticed in, in uh, chapter 31 that we read that last part, who is um, one of his armor, his armor bearer was an Amalekite. Later in 2 Samuel, we'll learn that it was an Amalekite that came and, and, and reported to David that he had actually killed Saul and David killed him. This guy wouldn't be alive if Saul just would have obeyed. But he decided, he decided, I will obey until it doesn't make sense for me. I will obey until it's inconvenient for me. I will obey until I don't want to anymore. I'll, I'll surrender to you, God, until I don't. That's not true surrender, obviously. And look, look with this dramatic story. Samuel tells him in chapter 15, after Samuel confronts him over this, Samuel tells him in chapter 15, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey, because it comes from your heart, is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, your external stuff, man. Just checking off the boxes. I want your heart because that mean, I, then, that's shown by your obedience. For rebellion, now look at this, Re rebellion is as the sin of what? Divination or witchcraft. It's a tell. It's calling the shot to chapter 28. This is how Saul's life will, it will this fault line will, of rebellion will crack through Saul's life, through chasing David, through the wilderness, through, all the, through killing the city of the priest, all of those things, and it's finally manifest for what it really is in chapter 28 with witchcraft, necromancers, mediums, spiritists. His real heart is coming out. He says, in presumption or pride or arrogance is the iniquity of idolatry. What we're talking about here is worship, heart, the heart. Samuel is saying, this is what's wrong with your heart, Saul. You've made a choice, and it's a wicked choice, and it's given darkness a foothold in your life. And how did you give, what did you decide? How did you give darkness a foothold in your life? We're talking about idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then in verse 27 of chapter 15, it says, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul, who's super insecure, seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. You can just picture the scene. Samuel gets mad and he's like, God has taken the king away from you. And he just turns to walk away and Saul won't have it. He reaches and there's this tearing and Samuel whips around and says, just Right, fast. Samuel whips around and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and is giving it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Ouch. Ouch. What a dramatic scene. Did you see the connection with divination? What Saul's doing in chapter eight, he's consulting with spiritists. It's just the manifestation of what's been going on in his heart since chapter 15. In other words, what was in Saul's heart all those years earlier at the battle is now, is now playing. It's like the mask has come off. We see what's really there. What are the symptoms of his impaired heart? This is good for us because we can, without shaming ourselves, we can just learn to kind of diagnose ourselves in certain situations. Let me read a, a portion of this to you and let me see what, you, what we can discern. And you can feel free to, to yell out your own observations. What are the symptoms of an impaired heart? Look, listen to the verse five. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there's a medium in Endor. And then I'll jump to verse 20 for an example. Then Saul fell at once full length to the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. What are, what are some character traits that are coming out from this heart that you can see just from that passage? What do you notice about Saul? What's your impression? Yeah, Dave? Sounds like what? He's afraid, yes. Yep, he is uh, very, he's trembling. He's so afraid. His heart is trembling with fear. Yep, anyone else? Yeah, Christine. He's an anxious guy, yes. Yeah, he is very, very anxious. I, I think we could take data from other places in Samuel where he's pursuing David. He's paranoid. He's paranoid. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Yeah, Phil? Yeah, yeah. So he's, he, he's kind of, um, the way I would put what you're saying is he's divided against himself, isn't he? Yeah, yes, I, I wonder if you're referring to um, Elijah, the battle of the prophets with Baal. He's saying stop having a divided heart. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Renee, yeah. Yes, there's cognitive dissonance between what he says and how he's living, absolutely, right, yep. Anyone else? Okay, yeah, desperate for someone to save him, but unwilling to listen at the same time. A excellent observation, yes, yep. I have a, what about James? You know when it talks about a double-minded man? Yes, 
Yes, oh, excellent, excellent, Kristen. A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yeah, we don't get the feeling of stability here with Saul, right? He doesn't feel stable. Yeah, Dave. Yes, yes. So his well-being seems tied to his kingdom. When he loses control, he loses, or when the kingdom loses control, he loses control. When the kingdom is secure, he feels pretty good, right? Yeah. He's not God what? He's not centered on God, no. He is if God will do what he wants. <laughs> He's demoted God to his lackey, you know. He wants God to do what he wants him to do, absolutely. Yeah, good observations, it's awesome. Um, and let me just point out, this has bled over into how, uh, scarily, this has bled over into how he's lead, his led his country. His emotions are not connecting to his mind? Yeah, right. And this has bled over into how he leads. We'd like to think in our day and age that a leader's innards, insides, don't really affect, we can compartmentalize, they don't really affect how someone is leading a country or a church or whatever it might be. It's scary that they are, they absolutely are. This guy is the guy in charge of the nation and he is falling apart and he is, how is it manifested into his leadership? Well, he's been, instead of dealing with the Philistines, who, who is he been chasing? He's been chasing David, a guy that has shown no, posing no threat to trying to take the kingdom out of Saul's hand ever. David has been, had, Two, uh, two attempts that David could have killed him and taken the throne for himself, and David decided not to. Saul's been, I mean, he amassed 3,000 men to go search for David among the caves, and meanwhile, these Philistines, they're, apparently they're amassing, they're, they're the real threat. So his leadership has been skewed in this. He's not seeing straight because of his heart. Saul has even acknowledged that God has given David the kingdom. Do you remember that? Uh, the first uh, time that when he was, when Saul went into the, happened to go into the same cave that David was in with his men and David came out and said, look, with a, the corner of his robe, look, I could have killed you. Remember what Saul, at the very end of that, Saul said, I know you're, I know you're the true king. When you take the throne, please make an oath with me not to kill my, my kids. He was acknowledging God has given you the kingdom and yet... He goes against God's own will. You can see the gangrenous nature of an impaired heart based on a decision of what to worship. What we worship is what gives us value. What we worship is what validates our existence, what justifies our right to be here. And that can, you know, Spurgeon said famously, our hearts are idol factories. He said we can make a God to worship out of anything or anyone, even religion, even Christianity, even the ministry, and it eats us alive. Oh, you guys remember when we first started with Saul, he was this beautiful young man, humble, remember that? He, didn't even, he wasn't even looking for the kingdom, he's trying to, just trying to bless his dad, out looking for his lost Donkeys, Samuel said, you're gonna be king. He was like, not me, I'm, I'm not, I'm just this humble guy. Remember when they went to coronate him king, he hid? At one point, 
um, in chapter 10, it says the spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he prophesied. It even says the spirit gave him a new heart. Woo! The power of an impaired heart to shipwreck a soul, even the strongest. Look at the sad, tragic outcome. Verse six says, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Sadly, he lost God in this. Hurts me to even say it. He lost God because God is not the king of of his heart anymore. Like I said earlier, Saul has demoted God in his heart to his personal lackey, kind of like a, more like a genie, useful to Saul only when he can get God to bless him, but then not, but not truly surrendered to God. He doesn't have open hands. He's an anxious man. He's in control. He's manipulating. He's paranoid. Look what else he loses. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the, on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There's no strength in him. I mean, he's just wasted away. Basically, he's lost God. He's also losing himself. He's losing himself. He's not thinking straight. He's not the man that we first met. He's devastated. Not, and he's devastated in verse 20, not because he's lost Yahweh, but because he's losing his idol. You know, if you were given 24, if someone said, hey, in 24 hours from now, you're gonna be dead, what a gift that would be in some senses. Isn't there like songs written, like a country song written after that, that I would like, I would like ride a bull or I would climb some mountain or something? Nicole, do you know what that is? Tim McGraw, yes. I, I, hope, I hope someday you'll get the chance to live like you were dying, you know, right? Isn't that how it goes? She's like, yes, he does better than me, I know. Right, in some ways, being said that, hey, you've got 24 hours to live is a, is, is a chance and an act of grace in and of itself. What could Saul have done here? He could have fallen before the Lord and said, Lord, I have made a mess of it all. I accept what you're gonna do tomorrow, but please forgive me. Forgive me. And make these last 24 hours my greatest, Right? It could have ended well, absolutely. This, in a sense, was a, is, a, is a painful chance. This is a, um, what, what do they say, a, a something, a, a hurtful mercy, or, you know, a, a severe mercy, yes. This is a severe mercy here. But he's losing himself. His heart is wasted away. He's losing the very thing that he's, so he's lost God, he's lost himself, and he's losing the very thing that he fought so hard to protect. He's now losing his kingdom. His God, you could say, is eating itself now. I think of Jonathan Edwards, who famously said, I've never, met a, I've never seen a fire that is, that it, uh, you know, is, has a, has, that's had enough fuel. He's never met a fire that said, okay, I'm good. I don't need no more wood. No, no, no. The, the Adele... The, He's never met a fire that doesn't need any more fuel or wood. So the idea is is that the fire is just always hungry. That's idolatry. It just wants more until it finally just devours and gobbles up itself like a cancer. And finally, his impaired heart is his ultimate undoing. This is chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. 
and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul, and the battle was pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, who we'll find out later was an Amalekite, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Thus Saul died with his three sons. Notice that David did not take him out. David just waited for God to do it. In David we see somebody who surrendered David didn't know how it was going to, no doubt David did not know how it was going to come about. I'm sure he maybe doubted God's promise, but he let it go. He surrendered. He's completely surrendered and content with God. Elsewhere, David is in the Philistine country right now. We've skipped a bunch of that text and we will get back to it and we'll catch up with what David's been up to in the Philistine country. And but one's quote is that he is, quote, strengthening himself with the Lord his God. He's not strengthening himself with being, being back in the kingdom, ruling and reigning. The promise did not become his idol. No, he strengthened himself in the Lord that transcended the fulfillment of that promise or not. That means he's steady. David is surrendered, but Saul is filled with strife. He, and, and tragically, gosh, don't you wish the, the worship in our hearts would just affect us? I think the real bugger here about the, what we worship and the fallout is that it ends up hurting the people we love the most, doesn't it? His sons die along with him. Even oh, dear Jonathan, this incredible man, incredible man, this wonderful, incredible person. This is perhaps, I think, the most tragic parts of the story and so many stories that we hear. This is a, a, an all-too-common tale. Idolatry destroys the innocent people around us. How sad it is when we've sacrificed our families and our children on the altar of our own successes and achievements. Some of you are wounded from that kind of treatment. I wish I could tell you that this was um, not infected my particular post or my, my, uh, my order. Pastors do this all the time. In fact, it's really easy for pastors to do it because everything is Christian. Everything, so we, it's, we're a little blind to it. How many pastors have sacrificed their families in the name of God on the altar of ministry? Yes, I was watching two videos the other day. This might be sh shocking. I was watching um, two videos of two pastors. One pastor was told he was given a mandatory leave, some issues going on in his life. So he left for three months, I think it was. And he came back and he got up to teach a sermon series called, uh, what was it? It was called A Hot Mess. And it was his way of saying, I'm a hot mess, but I'm okay now. I'm fine now. Thank you for the break. I'm doing good. I'm a hot mess, but God loves me and I'm ready to get back to work. And a month later, he killed himself. Yeah. I'm going to explain in a second. Then the second video I saw was of a pastor and a wife who stood up before their congregation and the elders surrounded them. And, you know, you're thinking, uh oh, oh. 
And the pastor said graciously, you know, my wife and I, we have tried and tried and tried to be in the ministry and be healthy. And for us, we just aren't making it. So we choose health. We're gonna let it go. I thought, oh, jeez. Letting it go. It's become an idol. It's destroying, it's eating me alive. It's eating my family. So the question is, how to change, how do we change and repair an impaired heart? Maybe you're sitting here a little uncomfortably noticing some symptoms in your own life. Man, I feel really anxious sometimes around certain things. You know, the best thing to know is, is that, you know, imagine the things that in the people that you love being taken away. What does your gut do? Do you go, no, not that, not that. That's, that's a sign. <laughs> that's a sure s- symptom. How do you change and repair an impaired heart? How do we avoid the fate of Saul? Well, I've said this before as we've been going through the life of David and Saul and all of these people. I think the most remarkable person in the Saul story is his son Jonathan. I really do. I think he's remarkable. Who is the heir to the throne but gives it up. He's the heir to the throne. He follows his, and not just gives it up, he follows his foolish father into battle and loses his life by the side of his crazy dad. In Saul, you have a man who is grasping, striving, trying to keep. And in Jonathan, you have a man that is surrendered, even to the point where he died to give his kingdom to somebody else. Literally, that's what happened. He died to give his kingdom to David, to somebody else. And the first thing to do here, you guys, as we're trying to decipher this and interpret this, the first thing we need to do here is put ourselves in the rightful place in the story. Who are we in this story? You and me, I just, I mean, we've just got to wear it. We've got to, you and I are Saul. I'm sorry to say it. I'm sorry if that's discouraging, but it's true. You and I are the Saul in the story. We are the ones who, we sing a song, I've stolen your breath but sang my own song. That's us. I'm made for your, I'm, I'm the prodigal, made for your house but I've walked my own road. That is Saul. We're the ones who have stolen God's breath. We're the ones that are so insecure, are trying to build our own kingdoms through our successes, through whatever it is, and in comes Jesus the rightful heir to the throne. He's the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, the Messiah, the throne, the throne of the kingdom of God. And what, how did he get it? How did Jesus become king? By giving it up for you. Do you see that? He gave it up. How does a heart change? What is powerful enough to change a heart that makes idols out of everything, even good things. A heart that is cons- constantly trying to save itself and justify its own existence. How do we, what kind of power can overthrow that? Only love. Only love. Only love. Our hearts must be overthrown and salved by divine love. Only by surrender did Jesus come into his kingdom. You remember the story in Mark chapter eight. We just finished going through Mark. 
where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you're this, you're that, you're Elijah, you're all this. And finally, Peter says, you're actually, you're the Messiah. This is, this comes from, Han- this comes from chapter two, from Hannah, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, that's you. And Jesus said, yep, you're right, that's me. And then Matthew, he said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, um, Peter, but my father who is in heaven, and now I'm gonna go to the cross and die. And Peter goes, whoa, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 don't talk like that. Pull up, don't be so defeated. You're gonna go and you're gonna overthrow the Romans and we're gonna amass an army out here in the sticks and we're gonna march on Jerusalem and take the Davidic kingdom. And, and basically, Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't know how this is gonna work. I am the king. You're right about that. I am going to Jerusalem. You're right about that. I am uh, gonna take the throne, but by dying on a cross, by giving it up, by, by releasing it. What inspired his heart to give up the seat of divine power? What ins- let your hearts get this. What inspired God's heart to give up the seat of his divine power? His love for you. His love for you. And as a result, he gained the kingdom, being raised up to the highest place in the cosmos. Look at Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a Saul word. Grab it and hold on to it. Nope. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, unlike Saul, who had to stay in control and manipulate, Jesus surrendered to the will of God and let the kingdom be taken away from him. On the cross, he lost it all to save us, the Saul's in the story to purify our hearts. Remember who you are in the metaphor? Our hearts are corrupt. Reality is we want our own kingdoms and we want to rule and reign. In every skirmish, in every issue that you're having, that is at the heart of it, no doubt. To overthrow the kingdom of self in our hearts is to do it with surrendering love, surrendering to a love, the love of God. The sacrificial love is the power that raised him from the dead. And that's what we're gonna do today with communion. Let me give you some applications. When when our hearts are overthrown by God's love, to this degree, you will be surrendered in your life. When you choose to believe the love of God for you, anxiety will eventually eventually be replaced by peace. Manipulation will give way to surrender and trust and respect of someone else's autonomy. You won't have to change or crane them over to your way of thinking. And that will overflow through all of our lives to everyone around us. 
So, so passes the life of Saul, but this is not how our lives have to pass. Listen, if you're not dead, you're not done. Even if you have less than 24 hours, I've never been more inspired in my life to sing a country song. (laughs) Surrender to that love in your life and keep doing it. Enjoy the love of God. Abide in him and you will be free. This is not a, this is a, something that this freedom will grow in you. And we do it, appropriate it, by taking communion. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of these things, that I surrendered it all, I surrendered it all for you. My body was broken, my heart was ripped so that yours would be healed. The kingdom was torn away from me, just like it was torn away from Saul. It was torn away from me so that it would be given to you. That's what we remember when we do this. Let me, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts with the story of your love. Lord, on the night that you were betrayed, Lord, you took the bread with your followers and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And you took the cup blessed it and said, this is, represents the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. Jesus, at this point, this is the last supper. He, like Saul, had less than 24 hours and he knew it. And look how he ended his life by giving it up. Not by, Saul grasped it to the end. Even, even wanted to have control over, over how he died. I don't want the archers to get me. I'll just kill myself. Control, control, control to the very end. Jesus, instead, with his last 24 hours, surrendered and gave it up and let it be for us.